Welcome to the Authors Who Lead podcast. This podcast is dedicated to you, people who want to be inspired by authors, leaders, and the messages they share. This is such an important podcast to us because we help uncover what goes on behind the scenes when authors are writing their book. We talk about the process. We talk about where they get big ideas, and you can listen in on those conversations. We can't wait for you to join us. So let's get started. Hey everyone, Asul Thronis here. Welcome back to another episode of Authors Who Lead. I'm thrilled today to have Alisa Dunham's here. She's an executive coach, an entrepreneur, and has coached thousands of leaders, executives, and industry experts to share their message with the world through her signature process, Acclaimed Bestseller in the Weekend, which I, that's how I discovered her years ago. She empowers readers and leaders of all ages and stages of their career and life to harness the power of intentional communication with transformational results. Alicia has been featured in Good Morning America, KTLA, and The Steve Harvey Show. Her new book, I Get To, How Using the Right Words Can Radically Transform Your Life, Relationship, and Business. Welcome to the show. Azul, it's so great to be here. I'm thrilled. And you know, what's great is that you know those of us who help authors, we all kind of live in the same world, but we don't always cross paths. And sometimes we do. But it was really great to just get to know you before we even had this podcast interview and realize that one, we're both Bruins, went to UCLA, which is kind of nice to know <laughs> that we have some grown children and that we love helping authors write books. Before we get into your current book, tell us how you kind of got on that helping people write books journey. Because it's, it's not a path I thought I would be on. So how about you? It was definitely not a direct path from A to B. I can tell you that <laughs> right now. So really, it started with my first book. In 2007, I wrote a book called Goal Digger, G-O-A-L Digger, Lessons Learned from the Rich Men I Dated. I was in my late 20s, early 30s when I wrote that book. And it really shared my journey. I was a single mom. You still am. <laughs> and, and during that time, I was... Wow, this is a long story. I don't know how much we can get into, we get into here. <laughs> we got all the time in the world. Oh my goodness. Well, the story really goes back to me being a very highly independent woman, which I still am today highly independent and young. And when I was 25, I had my daughter. And so I said, well, I'm going to, you know, this whole concept of I'm going to make the bacon. And was, was gonna, I'm going to bring home the bacon and cook the bacon. That's what I used to say to myself. <laughs> so it's very highly independent. And, and I went to a, I remember I went to a New Year's Eve party and it was around the time, it was actually New Year's Eve. And it was around the time when Nicole Murphy was at, married to Eddie Murphy. So my mom is friends with Nicole Murphy's mom. And, and and she's a beautiful woman, you know, married to Eddie Murphy, no longer married. But I was, I was at her house and all of the women at the party, they were getting kind of drunk. And these are my mom's friends. And they were talking to me. They're like, Alicia, you do everything by yourself. They're, they said, you need to be with a, a wealthy man. You need to be with a millionaire. And they, they pointed over to Nicole Murphy at the time. And I just felt awful. Because I had always, you know, it's this interesting thing, you know, being 25, having my child, you know, the father of my child leaving. So I had to be independent. And I, I really, I bought my own house, I bought a car, and I, I started the business that I am in today. I've been a business owner for 20 plus years now. My daughter's 19. And so I had all these accomplishments and I felt so good. And in, in that single moment, just those words really crumbled me. Mm. And, and so, <laughs> It kind of led me on this really weird, wild, wacky journey of, well, maybe there is something. And then I, I was on these dating websites and, and meeting you know, men of particular means. 
And I found that when I was dating them, I'm like, I don't want to marry any of these guys, but I definitely want to learn how they created the wealth of themselves. <laughs> and I'm like, and so it's just this kind of hyper independent part of me. And so through that process and you know, meeting wonderful mentors and what have you, you know, one of the, the men that I dated said, you should write a book because I started to collect all the lessons that I was learning from you know, dating these people, these successful people. And so with that, I wrote a book called Gold Digger. And yeah, wow, that's uh, 14 <laughs> years ago now. Time has, fly, has flown. So as I wrote that book and I, I launched the book, immediately when I looked, I looked on the New York Times bestseller list when I launched my book in 2007. And on the list, I looked for other female authors. And at the time, there was Laurel Langmeyer, Christine Comerford, Marcy Shimoff. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, how did these women make money? So obviously, I wrote a book, became an Amazon bestseller, still selling to this day on amazon.com. And I said, okay, Laurel Langmeyer, Christine, it looks like they do consulting, coaching, they put on like events and seminars. Well, I'm going to do that. So I decided to put on a woman's event and I called it Wealthy Girl Summit. And what I did, Azul, which is a pretty interesting, very bold actually, is I picked up the phone and I called Laurel Langmeyer. And I said, Hey, Laurel, I have a book and it just became an Amazon bestseller. Would you come speak at my women's conference? And she was like, This is this is in true Laurel fashion. She said, Absolutely. And I was like, Wow, oh my goodness, is it really that easy? And then I called up Christine Comerford and she said yes. And Marcy Shimoff and she said yes. So I ended up having third, 13 speakers at this women's event. And still some women that I'm uh, friends with to this day, like uh, Ali Shanti, her name is, I know I met her as Alexis Martineal, <laughs> Neely, excuse me. And who else? Uh, Sanyika, who's a really good friend of mine. She's a New York Times bestselling author of Chicken Soup for the African-American Soul. So I met all these fabulous women. They flew down, like Laurel came down in her private jet to speak at my conference. And then I saw the power of writing a book. That when you write a book, it just almost, I mean, you can... If you look at life as a hill or a mountain, you can kind of climb from the bottom or you can take a helicopter to the top. And what I experienced is that writing a book really, it ups your level in terms of reach, in terms of your network. And so from that, I did my women's conference. And then I was like, wow, it wasn't really a financial win. I, mean, I sold tickets and things happened, but I'm like, I can't, make a, I can't make a living like this. So one of the speakers said to me, Hey, can you help me write my book and market my book? And that was Alexis Martinelli, who's now Ali Shanti. And, and then another a woman speaker said, Hey, I need to write a book too. So guess what happened? I started a book writing business. So I, I've been doing this since 2007. And I started helping people write books. And from there, it just built and built. And now I've been doing it for 15 plus years now. And that's how the journey began. That's how the yeah. journey began. You know, we share such similar stories at different timelines, but. I had no idea that writing a book would bring so much opportunity, that it elevated me way past my peers in a way that I didn't understand. And telling people that I wrote a book in a very short period of time and telling them about the stuff I was doing is when they said, would you help me write a book? Yeah, sure. That sounds like a business idea, a business opportunity. And of course, you have to be passionate about it. You have to care about it. You have to want to do it. Otherwise, it just becomes a drudgery. But for me, I loved it. And I'm sure you do too. And the thing that I learned about it is I get to be connected to so many amazing, wonderful leaders out there who, I mean, wouldn't have anything to say to them. I mean, NFL football players and celebrities and stuff that without the book, without an authorship, I'm just, I was at the time just a school teacher. I'm like, who are, who are you? So it really does provide you with so much access because such a small percentage of people become authors. 
that unlike even degrees, advanced degrees, doctorates, lawyers, you still even rise above them sometimes because they aren't authors and you are. So I really think that that's a part of owning your truth, which I loved, which is another thing about your book I get to is that I realized how much you own your story. And a lot of us, based on the way we live our lives, and in the case of your book, how we speak our lives, we don't own our story, right? And so I love the story about when you were telling your parents after you graduated UCLA that you get to go on a trip and they're like, sure, you could go on a trip if you take a friend and then your friend canceled. <laughs> and I was laughing to myself. I was like, oh, that's something I probably would do. That makes a lot of sense to me. But the way that you take action and own your story, and it's in particular, the way you, that we as people can own our perspective, our story, our truth through the way we we position the words that we use. Tell us more about the premise of your book and why it's such a powerful tool to talk about getting to versus having to. Mm, thank you so much. Yeah. And as you mentioned, having a book just increases access and, and credibility. And, and so I experienced that with my first book. And then when I wrote, I get to how using the right words can radically transform your life relationships and business. And I actually got that subtitle for some of my clients in my bestseller weekend group. <laughs> Cause I was like, what should I subtitle this book as? And really I get to is the most powerful reframing tool I think that's out there because of the simplicity to change your mindset from I have to, to I get to. Yeah. And specifically, this whole concept of I, I have to go to work. And when you change it to I get to go to work, that means you have a job because some people don't. And with the experience of the pandemic, we obviously see that people have lost jobs. They have lost lives. So changing I have to from I have to do the dishes to I get to do the dishes, mm -hmm. meaning that you have food, a family that you maybe just prepared it for. So what it does is it reframes from a place of drudgery, as you were speaking into before, to gratitude, it really grounds you in gratitude. Now, I think the most powerful story, which is in my book on I get to, is when I shared a recording, I interviewed one of my leadership trainers, where I first initially heard this concept from I have to, to I get to, and did an interview, put it on LinkedIn, and someone saw it. And I didn't know this woman. And she said her powerful transformation of I have to, to I get to was when she buried her child. Mm -hmm. And she said, I got to be a mom. I got, I mean, it was this powerful story. I was in tears. I have the whole like the excerpt in my book of this reframe of, and it gives me chills actually right to this day, this reframe of the gratitude that is in the everyday life and being able to say that I got to be, even her child said, you know, when she was diagnosed with cancer, it's like, I get to go to the doctor. I get to have chemotherapy. I get to. When some people are not even don't have that ability. And so when she buried her child, she's like, I get to send my child off to heaven's loving care. And so that's a powerful reframe. And, and, you know, wow. I mean, to be a place to be able to say that. So I wanted to share that story. And it's really shared powerfully in the book is that what does it look like to use language? And that's why I really stand by this concept of intentional communication for transformational results, that the words we choose in our life will determine the results, will determine how we perceive life, will determine our behavior, our emotions, our thoughts, you know, even coming from a place that you have a negative thought or you know, a biased thought. And even saying something like, 
cancel, cancel, or even saying something. I've done that where I've spoken to my daughter and I've, I've said something that I wish I didn't say. Cancel, cancel. Can I rewind that? Let's start over. And so being really intentional with your communication and and preemptive that if something slips out of your mouth and you didn't want to say it is taking ownership, being vulnerable, and starting from scratch. And Azul, I think this is important because in the book, I have 40 communication scripts. And all of them, really, I'd say a great majority have to do with the power of reframe. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that in so many great examples, not only just the story that you shared, I'm glad you brought it up, but also in multiple scenarios where how powerful the reframe is. So many times we we have programmed responses. I think the way you described it is even if we see each other today and you mention, oh, you look lovely, you look great. And you mentioned the story, we have this program response to quickly go back to tell the other person how great they look rather than us and defer the gratitude or blessing or gift of their giving us praise and accepting that and just saying the words thank you is a reframing of of that. And there's some programming that has to be done. And I think your book does a beautiful job of helping people realize how often this programming is existing in their daily day lives and how simple it is to change it. Yeah, we are wired this way. We're living on automatic and that's our default. We constantly go to that. And so we don't even know we're doing it. So if someone says, wow, you look fantastic today, we'll automatically deflect it and say, oh, you look great too. Even though they might've just like come out of the gym. <laughs> you know, they look- like, they're like, uh, and, and then it feels inauthentic right. at that point. So a tool that I have for people to receive that is to say, I received that. Thank you. Yeah. It doesn't always have to be back at them and to receive that and let that compliment really, really sit in that compliment, really marinate in that compliment. And so what I'm doing, I just actually called before you, I was talking to this lovely woman and she's like, wow, you're just wonderful looking. And, and you know, she was saying, you just seem like a magnetic force. And I say, thank you. I received that. Yeah. It's a great tool to remind yourself that you can have a period at the end of a sentence <laughs> and bring something to you instead of pushing it away. Because that's how you, you push back more abundance when you can't accept the small levels of abundance you receive in just words, right? Yes. So I think that's something that I've learned along the way, getting accolades, praise or anything. You know, it's a false humility, or at least it's what we're trained that humility is, be humble. But really what you're saying is, I don't accept it. I don't believe it. I don't trust you. As opposed to, thank you, what a gift. That feels good. That's a different mm-hmm. way to approach somebody giving you something. I don't think it's humble at all. I think it's actually misdirected feelings that you have about yourself and it doesn't help the person who's giving to you or you yourself. So I think your book does a wonderful job of doing that. What do you think is another thing that just using the language of being able to get to can help people as they progress through this journey we're doing in life or business? Yeah, absolutely. So obviously I have to changing it to I get to. I love the reframe of did it happen to me or did it happen for me? So that's coming from a place of honoring all the experiences in life, that every experience in life has some sort of merit. And and instead of being a victim of circumstances, saying, where's the lessons? What did I learn from this? And who do I get to be because of this? So I think that's a really powerful reframe as well. Now, one that is one of my favorites, and it's not something that you would necessarily say, but it's something that I think that you can say silently to yourself when you're in a moment of disappointment. Often we'll say, I'm disappointed. Okay. I'm disappointed. And, and I think this comes from my mom because this is something that she always <laughs> says to me. <laughs> I'm, I'm disappointed that you didn't do this. I'm disappointed that. So, so I, I definitely have some energy around it. 
Right. And so what I, and this, I've talked to my mom about this, actually. It's like, how about you be appointed? Instead of being disappointed, be appointed that you can correct the situation or change or you know reframe the situation. So if you feel disappointed by someone, so if someone didn't give you a phone call back or someone said they were going to drop something off and they didn't or what have you, instead of being disappointed, give them a call and be appointed and say, oh, you mentioned you were going to drop something off. When can I expect that package? Right. Or you, and in a way that, and again, it's not just what you say, it's how you say it. It's who you say it to. It's when you say it. It's why you say it. So the context is just as important as the words. So something that I share is the context creates the content. The context creates the content, meaning, and I've, and one of the books, another book that I wrote with a co author who's one of my clients who's a lawyer, we did a book, a sexual harassment prevention book. And it was called What to Say and Do When You're Sexually Harassed. Now, we did some corporate speaking around it as well. And one of the things when it comes to something like sexual harassment, obviously, when that is happening, one of the scripts we have, and it's also in my book I get to as well, is if you are being harassed in any way, it's the following script. There's a line of decency and you just crossed it. I ask that you stop now. Yeah, powerful word. So delivering it in a neutral way too. Now, obviously, those type of situations can be very charged and emotional. And so it's not just the words, it's the intonation. It's what's behind the words. And so it's not only having these words at your fingertips and being able to use it, because sometimes you don't even know what to say. You're like, what? Wait, you're like 10 minutes down. What, what just happened? Oh my, you know, like there's that. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to create that particular script for people who are being harassed in any way is to powerfully create real-time intervention. Right. I actually want to normalize real-time intervention, normalize the ability to speak up, speak at, speak out, and speak to in the moment, and being able to deliver it in a way where you're not harming the other person and you are setting a boundary. Right. Okay. So how can we be kind interruptions? I love that, kind interruptions. You know what? You're talking about this lightning instance that things can occur. I have in my mind, and I try very hard to do this. I'm not very good at it yet. But when something unexpected happens, instead of going, gosh, darn it, you know, I can't believe this is happening, to say, oh, well, I didn't expect that. (laughs) Whether someone runs into my car or, you know, does something wrong. And the other day, I was thinking, in the moment, I was thinking, I should practice more saying, oh, that wasn't what I expected. And I'm not kidding you, Alicia. Moments later, I stepped in my dog's poo. And I don't know why I didn't see it. It was in the house. And I thought, I started going, I can't believe you did that. I was like, oh, wait a second. I was just asking for opportunities to practice this. And then I was like, well, that definitely wasn't what I was expecting. But it turned my mind and perspective around. It's just an unexpected thing. I don't need to be mad at it. or There's no reason to think that somehow I could have prevented something I wasn't expecting. But it's in the moment, anything like that where you're reframing your brain takes practice and it takes deliberate effort. And you have to be vigilant because when you need it the most, it's not going to be the natural thing that pops up in your head. Is that what you found when you're trying to train people about using this technique? It's not natural at first. It all requires practice. I used to say I have to automatically for decades of my life. And then when I was in the practice of saying I get to, and and I have some friends and my daughter, they laugh because I, I will say like, I get to go the to the accountant. I get to pay taxes. You know, it's like, <laughs> people are like, what? And you just continuously train. And, and for some reason, like something like I get to pay taxes, it comes from a place of gratitude. Yeah. 
And so I love what you said is like, oh, that's not expected. That wasn't expected. So it almost comes from a place of curiosity, wonder, playfulness, like, oh, and so that's, you know, to just, you know, bring the point back of being neutral around situations and circumstances that all events in life are neutral. It's how we react. Okay. So it's the reaction versus the response. And and so that's where the intersection of neuroscience comes in with the words that we use because our automatic and our most base tendencies are to to curse or to to get upset or to get emotional or to say things that we wish we didn't say. And when we take time from being out of our ancient brain, our most reactionary part of our brain into our most deliberate, as you mentioned, prefrontal cortex, which requires breath work, which requires the pause, which requires this meditative breath. When we have those type of tools our disposal in our toolkit, then we can come from a place of response versus reaction. Right. That's such a great point that that pause, that breath, because in my instant, you're going to revert back to that lizard brain that like, ah, um, it's a great example. My husband, and I, I always share is that we lived in Puerto Rico and San Juan in a high rise. And we happened to have our door right across from the trash chute. Not ideal, but you know, the other ideal part is it was across from the window across the hall. So we could open up our window and we get this tunnel of wind, which is lovely. But you know, occasionally people would leave the lid off of the trash can. And every time he'd go to the trash, he'd be like, who did this? I can't believe someone would dump their trash and leave the lid off. And he kept doing it. And one day he just said, you know what? Maybe this is my job. So maybe that's what I'm supposed to be doing, putting the lid on the trash can. I just, I'm assuming that I'm not supposed to be like, it's not my job. It's somebody else's job. And he just started saying, he'd start checking the trash. Oh, look, they left it. I get to put it on here. And he saw it differently. And so instead of it being a burden, he's like, oh, this is my joy. I get to put the lid on. And if it's done, I was like, oh, someone did it for me. It's even, it's so nice. I mean, it's just a total reframe, something that made him irate. I mean, just irritated at, you know, these, you know, when you start using the word, these people, that's when you know you're off the deep end. <laughs> These people, that's a perfect example. We, I have a whole thing on that. <laughs> right, right. Do you know that that's when the, the triggering is going on? But it turned something that was actually a burden into a moment of joy. And I would find joy and giggle and laugh of thinking like, wow, that simple reframe has changed the way you see something that used to be a burden into a joy. Yes, I love that. And that's what it, that's what it does. And you know, a few other things like it, especially the last year, which with the racial unrest and the, the social economic unrest and, you know, the, the, the political, uh, you know, unrest and division that we've seen in this country. You know, one thing that people are afraid of is to speak up yeah. or to have conversations. Everything seems so, you know, antagonizing and, you know, conflicting. Instead of that, use it as an opportunity that if you are talking to someone who has a differing belief, different political belief perspective is to, you could thank them or you don't even have to do that. It's like, I hear you. I appreciate you sharing that and offering that perspective. Yeah. So what does it look like to just acknowledge them where they are and say that you hear them? You can, if you feel thankful, you can say that you, you can thank them and offering their perspective. It gives you another way to look at the situation. Right. And so it doesn't have to be that you get into a fight with people on, you know, different, differing opinions around different topics. It's what does it look like to hear them out and just acknowledge them? Yeah. And so that goes back to the, the, the way that you are, the way that we, we get to be. And I think neutral is a really powerful tool is to not be attached. 
And one way that we, we become neutral is a tool that I use and I, I call it be the fog, mm-hmm. be the fog. And that tool is when people are sharing their beliefs or sharing their thoughts or criticizing you or what have you, you just literally let all of those words just pass through you like your fog. And you just look and look at them with wonder, ah, like the, the clouds going through the sky. And, and so you're not attached to it. And so it's, you know, one thing that one of my favorite books is um, Michael Singer's uh, Untethered Soul. And what he speaks into in, in that book is that we are witnessing energy. So what does it look like just to witness, just mm. to notice? Yeah. One of the most powerful phrases that I love to use is, what did you notice? Because it slows your brain down from thinking and just be an observer. Mm-hmm. Um, this is such good stuff. I, I mean, I think you and I could probably talk about these things, and especially the things in your book for a long time. And I think we will sometime in person. I look forward to those days when yes. the world allows. And, you know, launching a book, you know, coaching other people to become bestsellers, there's a lot of, I think, that comes with this. People might call it imposter syndrome. They might call it a lot of before it's written, it's writer's block, but there's similar things. What do you do when you have an author that? They're writing a book, but they want to hide behind it when they want to say, well, if it's good, they'll respond or, you know, you have to tell them about what it is to be the leader of their book, the muse of their book. How do you help your authors understand the power of stepping into their truth and sharing their message? I think one of the things that I share is, and I have a couple of examples of authors who've done this. Uh, One example is her name is Anna Maria Sanchez, and she's I worked with her for over 10 years ago, 10 plus years ago. And she wrote a book called Girl from the Hood, Gone Good. And in this particular book, she shares her story of you know, sexual abuse and you know, drug use, et cetera. And, and she, as she, when she wrote the book, she, she is a healer. And some of the w- women or people in her healing community said, you know, because we were making the book a bestseller, she got on like CBS News and the San Francisco Bay Area. So like things were getting really big. And they're like, why do you want to go so big? Why are you sharing this so big? And, you know, being a healer is about being humble. It's about, you know, being humble essentially. And, and she says, what good is my message if I just keep it small? Right. And so I think the most powerful tool in that is to focus out. There's a, a phrase that I use. I think it's in the book. It's when in doubt, focus out. And so when we focus on ourselves, that's when we have imposter syndrome. That's when we think we're not good enough. But when we think about if this book, if this message, if this set of tools, if this methodology, if this framework changes one person, I had it with another woman, actually, she's in the process of writing her book now, and she has a fantastic story. And she's actually a philanthropist that helped has, that has raised millions of dollars for charity. And her book is about her, her story. And she doesn't, she's like, I, I don't want to be, I don't want to be out there. I don't want to do TV and, and stuff. And I said, think about how much more money you will raise for people who have a voice, because I believe everyone has a voice, but not everyone's voice is amplified. Right. Not everyone has access. And so it's this kind of, you know, this tough love of get over yourself and focus out on others that you will support that when you 10x this, that when you appear on you know, TV in Austin or San Francisco or, or New York and people hear about this, they'll start contributing to more charities. They'll start uh, supporting more women. And that's with Anna Maria Sanchez, because she went big with her book, she ended up speaking at the United Nations and supporting women worldwide in sex trafficking. And so we get to, we get to focus out on others and say, how will my message impact the world? Yeah. That's a brilliant example. And great advice to 
focus out. One of the things that I love to talk about is helping authors see their book as an extension of themselves. Now, you could definitely write a book as a product. I'm writing a book about how to how to 100 ways to make money dog walking, you know, for example, which is great. I'm glad those books exist. I'm not knocking anybody who's writing books like that. But I tend to focus on people who are using their book as a platform, a message center, a way to make a movement with their message. And so with that comes this idea of curating human beings. And the words are captured in the page, but the person living the truth is probably way more powerful and way more important than the books allowing it to be. It's only so many pages. It's you know read in isolation. It can be taken out of context. But helping authors understand this power, what have you noticed when authors decide to own their message as opposed to just write a book? What happens for them in that transition? Wow. Uh, that's, that's happening now with one of my clients who wrote a book from the immigrant women's uh, perspective in corporate America. And the message, when you own and, and embody and integrate the message, you become a walking billboard for it. You be, well, what it does is it becomes a movement. And so, so where you're initially, you know, breathing, breathing life into these words, into this message is that it starts to attract people. And then those people attract people and attract people. And so what happens is it creates a movement. So it becomes a conversation piece. And a, a topic like, like, like with my client, it's adding a perspective to the diversity, equity, inclusion conversation that we might have not heard that perspective. Uh, right. You know, a lot of times it's, you know, based on, you know, race or things of that nature. And this is like a particular experience. And so it becomes a movement. And so that's where it creates that, that ripple effect where it gets beyond, beyond you. And yeah. it's as an author, it's your responsibility to get it going. Yeah, it really is. And that's the that's the reason for coming bestseller. That's the reason for marketing. That's the reason for publicity. It's the reason for building something to grow it from. If if we had trains that were just engines, they would be interesting but not useful. The only thing that makes it interesting is all those cars attached to it, right? Bringing people or goods. So, books are like the engine, but they aren't much without the things that you bring with it. And there's plenty of ways you can do it. There's no one right way, but the longer the train, the more that comes with you. Yes, I love that as a metaphor. Yeah. I love so that. If people are listening out there and you had one strategy or one particular focus that they could make when they're trying to market launch their book, because there's there's a lot of th- I mean, there's so much out there about what you should do, can do, and all of them have different merits. What would your general advice be for someone who's trying to get their book really seen, get visible, and make mm. some traction? I mean, book marketing, there is no ceiling. It is like you, <laughs> you, you can spend tens of thousands of dollars, man hours, woman hours to get it out there. I mean, I have a spreadsheet, a 15-page spreadsheet of all the activities you can do to market your book. And so the focus that I share with my clients is to make it a bestseller on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or Wall Street Journal or USA Today, New York Times, if that's possible. And so it's having that one focus... And then everything being a, with that main focus, everything just leading to that particular end goal. So whether it's, you know, being on podcasts the same week or doing clubhouses and Facebook live, actually, I was on clubhouse the other day and Tim Story, who just launched a book, he's Oprah's life coach. I was on his book launch. uh, I was one of the panelists on his book launch party last night. He sold like 10,000 books on clubhouse in a three hour clubhouse. And Grant Cardone was on there. He said he'll match it. So, you know, approximately 20,000 books sold. This is all being, you know, collected at this time and, and making sure everyone who promised is written down and, and they, you know, actually purchased the book. So I think that 
there's so many ways to do it. But if that end goal is bestseller, it's like, okay, there's a strategy behind it. And it's it's having a concentrated amount of sales, whether it's the first day it launches, the first week it launches, if it's for the bigger lists. And those bigger amounts of sales is having bulk book sales, is having individual sales during the, to the different e-tailers, making sure it's diversified sales. So Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, et cetera, getting the bulk book sales. So your full focus is a concentrated amount of sales. And so that changes your strategy because, you know, appearing on podcasts and, and TV and doing these things, if they're just kind of peppered around your calendar, it's not going to create this kind of focused energy to make it a bestseller. And then once it's a bestseller, people who are not part of your community or not didn't hear about your book, for example, then they'll start seeing it. And then that perpetuates the book sales. Yeah. That's a great example. That's why I tell authors, first decide where you're going. Where are we going with this? You yeah. have to think farther ahead. Bestseller list should always be in your mind. Mm-hmm. It's definitely possible for anyone. The level of bestseller, you know, whether it's from Wall Street Journal, all that, that gets more, you get to be more intentional, have more of a reach. But each time they take these actions, they do what, just like if you're an author, that's great. If you're a bestselling author, you move up. And that's mm-hmm. what the value is. Is there implicit value in having the New York Times bestseller? Maybe not. Maybe not in the long term, mm-hmm. but still there is some credibility to hold on to, and you want to utilize that. You know, I think that's why I tell people, you know, I'm a TEDx speaker because there are even fewer TEDx speakers than there are authors, and yes. then you know there are, there are even fewer TEDx speakers with over a hundred thousand views. So you just kind of keep using those as tools to do the next thing. You're not taking it just for its moniker's sake. You're trying to leverage your message, your movement. I really appreciate the helping authors get clarity. Now let's. Let's talk about you. Where you know you had this idea at some point to help authors that you described here earlier. Where did the bestseller in a weekend come from? Like, where did that mm-hmm. that little seed come from? Because for some that might seem like impossible, but there had to be a reason why you said, you know, this is something that's needed, and I can do this. Mm-hmm. It has to come. It comes down to the recession, the recession <laughs> of two thousand eight, two thousand nine, and. What happened is I mentioned, you know, so starting in 2007, I was helping people write books and I was, you know, helping them with ghostwritten books and et cetera. And then the recession hit in 2000, 2000, 2008, 2009, and people didn't have, you know, the 10,000 plus dollars to do those type of uh, programs. And so what I decided to do, I was invited to speak at a women's event in San Jose. I was up in the San Francisco Bay Area at the time. And I'm like, okay, I've been doing one to one. You know, working with clients one to one. What can I do that's one to many? Because what I found is on all of those calls, I was saying the same thing. <laughs> like <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> to one client, I say the same thing, putting them through the same worksheets and the and the same blueprints and all of that. And I said, okay, what can I create? And I remember being at this woman's uh, this woman's event, and I was thinking, okay, what does it look like if I helped them write a book in a weekend? And one of my friends said, we'll call a bestseller in a weekend. I'm like, that's fantastic. So what I did is on the stage, I needed something to sell. And so I needed something that was maybe a lower price point, but I could have more people sign up for it. And so what I did was I did a, a speech. I shared with them you know, what they could get. And I basically did what I teach my clients to do when it comes to online businesses or any type of business services or product that they're offering is I, set, I sold first and I delivered second. So I sold the idea. I sold the concept. And then, so I had about 10 women buy it from the audience. And then I had it on the calendar. I even had a date. 
And then all these women showed up. This is when we were doing, you know, live events. I had it at probably like a Holiday Inn or something like that. (laughs) And then I created this, this really this five-step formula to support them. And the guarantee of the weekend is that they'll write a hundred page draft book manuscript and their marketing plan to become a bestseller on Amazon. So that's the guarantee of the weekend. That's what people do. And when they follow all the steps, that's what happens. And so for this feeling of to have an actual tangible product by Sunday, that a hundred words, excuse me, a hundred pages, 20,000 plus words to have that is a huge check. It's a huge like, wow, I really did it. And what I think the biggest self-esteem boost that happens during the weekend is when you think about writing a book, it just seems so far away. It seems out of range. It seems like I can't do it. Who am I to do it? When you actually embody it, that's why experiential work is so important. When you embody it, when you do the processes, and when at the end it comes out, you're like, I have a hundred page book this weekend. It's a super powerful experience for people because then they did it. And now I find several of my clients have written second and third books using the same process. Yeah. And so they have their 100 page draft book manuscript. Then they have something to work with, to edit, you know, whether they turn it into an ebook, whether they, you know, continue writing themselves and, and finishing it up, whether they hand it over to a, a ghostwriter or, a, you know, someone to finish it off for them. Then you have possibilities. Then yeah. you have choices at that point because you're not looking at a blank screen. Yeah, that's great. So, so I think that's what, and I know that's what the weekend does for people is giving them the confidence that they can do it, and it's also exhilarating as yeah. well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's 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 wonderful. The the confidence you get from just making the decision and doing the work, it's amazing. I make my authors the very first lesson. I say you have to get a post it and write. I am an author on it and put it somewhere you read it every day. But I want you to go in the mirror and say it out loud. And they're like, but I haven't written anything. I'm like, but who told you to? S- Say that you're not an author. I have plenty of writers coming to me with like their third book and say, you know, I'm not really a writer. I go, you wrote three books and you still say I'm not a writer? I don't understand. So it's a reframe, borrowing yeah. your language, that yeah. if you say I'm an author, guess what? Your mind will program to, to use the language and you show up to do the work because you know what? I'm an author. This is what authorship is. Mm-hmm. I love that you came up with it one during the recession. I got to solve this. Let me sell this thing. Let me solve this thing. It's solving a problem. And, and that's what everyone just did recently. They needed to, they needed to pivot. They needed to course correct. M- many people had, they wanted to go online. I mean, I, I was doing it online. Actually, Bestseller to Weekend is now an online course. We include a, a, book, a book coach with it. So that has, they have someone supporting them going through the weekend. But it's the, the power of that reframe or the, the pivot, if you will. And, and just as you say, I, I have people speak into during one of the exercises, I'm a best-selling author is to, to say that out uh, and then read the title and subtitle their book and, and pretend that they're on stage and you know, Oprah saying it or, you know, <laughs> right. and, and here we are, best-selling author of title and subtitle. So. <laughs> it's amazing when you have that sort of clarity. I try to help authors get, I say really good books get in trouble in one way that words get in the way. And they're like, what do you mean? I said, well, because you think a book is about words. You really believe that because you were trained in school to edit. You weren't trained to write. You were trained mm-hmm. to edit because you you were like, what's the grade? Okay. That's what I'm going to write to. And I edit until I get to that girl. If I'm a C student, I know the mark. We don't ever really think about this as a creative process where I'm trying to achieve an inner result. It's really just to please someone else. So when I tell them that this shift, the book is this small idea you're just trying to share with more people takes away the pressure of the idea that it's big. TED speakers, when TEDx speakers, when I used to help them, they also would come to me saying, I got to make it good. I got to make it big. I want to make, you know, I want to get a lot of views. I would say, 
you're missing the point. It's called ideas that spread, not really good speeches I give so people give me reviews. That's not what it's called. Yeah. But books are the same way. They're not bestsellers because you, you know, yes, you can make them a bestseller, but the book idea in itself comes from within you. You are the thing that we're looking for. Mm-hmm. It's not the words. The words is a reflection of you. So find you, find your truth, and you can show up. And that's how you make books. It's, it. it's not more difficult than that. Because all of us, I've helped 12-year-olds publish books. That's not the hard part. It's trusting this inner knowing of, I'm supposed to show up. I am an author. Mm, I am an author. Yes. Yeah. Well, this yeah. has been lovely. <laughs> you know, I can't wait to have more conversation with you. I want you to, everyone to go check out Elise's new book, I Get To. It's wonderful. It's on Amazon. We'll link it up here in the show notes. Where in social should we find you and connect with you? Because there's lots of people going to want to know more about what you do and to follow your journey. Absolutely. I'm at Alicia Dunham's on Instagram, on LinkedIn, on Facebook, on Clubhouse. Now, <laughs> hopefully Clubhouse will still be around in a couple of years from now. You never know. Because like, what happened to that one? There was a Periscope. What happened Periscope. to Periscope? <laughs> right. Is that still around? I don't know. But uh, so at Alicia Dunham's on all the social media, you can go to bestsellertoweekend.com for a strategy session. If you're interested in learning more, you can go to aliciadunham's.com, which is my blog. And uh, yes, I get to, and I'm also working on a, a book right now, which I'm very excited about and um, excited that that probably won't be out till 2022. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure and I hope to see you on the show again. Thank you, Azul. Thank you for listening again to another episode of Authors Who Lead. We appreciate you being here and we hope you subscribe so you get this delivered to your device every week. And if you haven't left us a review, please do so. It really helps. And if you have a book in your heart, you've been wanting to write a book, please go to authorswholead.com and join us on this journey of becoming a published author.